0: The Tree of Appomattox, A Story of the Civil War's Close by Joseph A. Altscheller, the eighth and final volume of the Civil War series, produced by Civil War Audio at civilwar.builtwithflash.com, read by John Versus. You can find us on Facebook at Civil War Audio Podcast. Chapter 15. Back with Grant. Despite the inevitable hostility of the people, their stay at Winchester was pleasant and fruitful. All three of the new young captains experienced a mental growth, and their outlook upon the enemy was tempered greatly. They had been through so many battles, and they had measured their strength and courage against the foe so often, that all hatred and malice had departed. North and south knowing too little of each other before the war, had now learned mutual respect upon the field of combat. And Dick, Warner, and Pennington, feeling certain that the end was at hand, could understand the loss and sorrow of the South and sympathize with the fallen. Their generous young hearts did not exult over a foe whom they expected soon to conquer. Late in January of the fateful year 1865, Dick was walking through the streets of Winchester one cold day. The wind from the mountains had a fierce edge, and as he bent his head to protect his face from it, he did not see a stout, heavily built man of middle age coming toward him, and did not stop until the stranger, standing squarely in his way, hailed him. "Does the fact that you've become a captain keep you from seeing anything in your path, Mr. Mason?" asked the man in a deep bass. But wholly good-natured voice. Dick looked up in surprise, because the tones were familiar. He saw a ruddy face, with keen twinkling eyes and a massive chin, a face in which shrewdness and a humorous view of the world were combined. He hesitated a moment, and then he remembered and held out his hand. "It's Mr. Watson, the contractor," he said. "So it is, lad," said John Watson, grasping the outstretched hand and shaking it heartily. "'Don't mind my calling you, lad, even if you are a captain. "'All things are comparative, and to me, a much older man, you're just a lad. "'I've heard of your deed in the mountains. "'In fact, I keep track of all of you, even of General Sheridan himself. "'It's my business to know men and what they do.' "'I hope you're still making money,' said Dick, smiling. "'I am. That's part of a merchant's duty. "'If he doesn't make money, he oughtn't to be a merchant.' Oh, I know that a lot of you soldiers look down on us traders and contractors. I don't, and I never did, Mr. Watson. I know it, Captain Mason, because you're a lad of intelligence. The first time I saw you, I noticed that the reasoning quality was strong in you, and that was why I made you an offer to enter my employ after the war. That offer is still open, and will remain open at all times. "'I thank you very much, Mr. Watson, but I can't accept it, as I have other ambitions. "'I was sure you wouldn't take it, but I like to feel it's always waiting for you. "'It's well to look ahead. "'This war, vast and terrible as it has been, will be over before the year is. Two or three million men who have done nothing but fighting for four years "'will be out of employment. "'Vast numbers of them will not know which way to turn.' they will be wholly unfit until they have trained themselves anew for the pursuits of peace. Captains, majors, colonels, and, yes, generals, will be besieging me for jobs, as zealously as they are now besieging Lee's army in the trenches before Petersburg, and with as much cause. When the war is over, the soldier will not be of so much value, and the man of peace will regain his own. I hope you've thought of these things, Captain Mason." I've thought of them many times, Mr. Watson, and I've thought of them oftener than ever this winter. My comrades and I have agreed that as soon as the last battle is fought, we'll plunge at once into the task of rebuilding our country. We amount to little, of course, in such a multitude, but one can only do what one can. That's so, but if a million feel like you and push all together, together they can roll mountains away. You're not a man to come to Winchester for nothing. You've been doing business with the Army? I've been shoeing, clothing, and bedding you. I deliver within two weeks 30,000 pairs of shoes, 30,000 uniforms, and 60,000 blankets. They are all honest goods, and the price is not too high, although I make a solid and substantial profit to which I'm entitled. You soldiers on the battle line don't win a war alone. "'We who feed and clothe you achieve at least half. "'I regret again, Captain Mason, that you can't join me later. "'Mine's a noble calling. "'It's a great thing to be a merchant prince, "'and it's we as much as any other class of people "'who spread civilization over the earth.' "'I know it,' said Dick earnestly. "'I'm not blind to the great arts of peace. "'Now, here come my closest friends, "'Captain Warner and Captain Pennington, "'who have understanding.' I want you to meet them. Dick's hearty introduction was enough to recommend the contractor to his comrades, but Warner already knew him well by reputation. "'I've heard of you often from some of our officers, Mr. Watson,' he said. "'You deliver good goods, and you're a New Englander, like myself. Ten years from now, you'll be an extremely rich man, a millionaire. Twenty years from now, you'll be several times a millionaire. "'About that time, I'll become president of Harvard, and we'll need money.' A great university always needs money, and I'll come to you for a donation of $120,000 to Harvard, and you'll give it to me promptly. John Watson looked at him fixedly, and slowly a look of great admiration spread over his face. "'Of course you're a New Englander,' he said. "'It was not necessary for you to say so. I could have told it by looking at you and hearing you talk. But from what state do you come?' "'Vermont.' I might have known that too, and I'm glad and proud to meet you, Captain Warner. I'm glad and proud to know a young man who looks ahead twenty years. Nothing can keep you from being President of Harvard, and that hundred thousand dollars is as good as given. Your hand again." The hands of the two New Englanders met a second time in the touch of kinship and understanding. Theirs was the clan feeling, and they had supreme confidence in each other. Neither doubted that the promise would be fulfilled, and fulfilled it was, and fourfold more. "'You New Englanders certainly stand together,' said Dick. "'Not more than you Kentuckians,' replied the contractor. "'I was in Kentucky several times before the war, and you seem to be one big family there.' "'But in the war we've not been one big family,' said Dick, somewhat sadly. "'I suppose that no state has been more terribly divided than Kentucky.' "'Nowhere has Kin fought more fiercely against Kin.' "'But you'll come together again after the war,' said Watson cheerfully. "'That great bond of kinship will prove more powerful than anything else.' "'I hope so,' said Dick earnestly. "'They had the contractor to dinner with them, "'and he opened new worlds of interest and endeavor for all of them. "'He was a mighty captain of industry, "'a term that came into much use later,' and mentally they followed him as he led the way into fields of immense industrial achievement. They were fascinated as he talked with truthful eloquence of what the country could become, the vast network of railroads to be built, the limitless fields of wheat and corn to be grown, the mines of the richest mineral continent to be opened, and a trade to be acquired that would spread all over the world. They forgot the war while he talked and their souls were filled and stirred with the romance of peace. "'I leave for Washington tonight,' said the contractor, when the dinner was finished. "'My work here is done. Our next meeting will be in Richmond.' All three of the young men took it as prophetic, and when John Watson started north, they waved him a friendly farewell. Another long wait followed, while the iron winter, one of the fiercest in the memory of man, still gripped both north and south." But late in February, there was a great bustle, portending movement. Supplies were gathered, horses were examined critically, men looked to their arms and ammunition, and the talk was all of high anticipation. An electric thrill ran through the men. They had tasted deep of victory since the previous summer, and they were eager to ride to new triumphs. "'It's to be an affair of cavalry altogether,' said Warner, who obtained the first definite news." We're to go toward Staunton, where Early and his remnants have been hanging out, and clean them up. Although it's to be done by cavalry alone, as I told you, it'll be the finest cavalry you ever saw. And when Sheridan gathered his horsemen for the march, Warner's words came true. Ten thousand Union men, all hardy troopers now, were in the saddle, and the great Sheridan led them. The eyes of little Phil glinted as he looked upon his matchless command— "'bold youths who had learned in the long, hard training of war itself "'to be the equals of Stuart's own famous riders. "'And the eyes of Sheridan glinted again "'when they passed over the Winchesters, "'the peerless regiment, the bravest of the brave, "'with the colonel and the three youthful captains "'in their proper places. "'The weather was extremely cold, but they were prepared for it, "'and when they swung up the valley "'and forty thousand hoofs beat upon the hard road, "'giving back a sound like thunder,' Their pulses leaped, and they took with delight deep draughts of the keen frosty air. While they carried food for the entire march, the rest of their equipment was light, four cannon, ammunition wagons, some ambulances, and pontoon boats. Dick thought they would make fast time, but fortune for a while was against them. The very morning the great column started, the weather rapidly turned warmer, and then a heavy rain began to fall. The hard road upon which the 40,000 hoofs had beat their marching song turned to mud, and 40,000 hoofs made a new sound as they sank deep in it and were pulled out again. "'If it keeps us from going fast,' said the philosophical sergeant, "'it'll keep them that we're going after from getting away. We're as good mud horses as they are.' "'Do you think we'll go through to Staunton?' asked Dick of Warner. "'I've heard that we will.' "'and that we'll go on and take Lynchburg, too. "'Then we're to curve about, and in North Carolina, "'join Sherman, who has smashed the Confederacy in the West. "'I don't like the North Carolina part,' said Dick. "'I hope we'll go to Grant and march with him on Richmond, "'because that's where the death blow will be dealt, "'if it's dealt at all. "'And that it will be dealt, we don't doubt, "'neither you, nor I, nor any of us. "'Yeah, that's so.' While mud and rain could impede the progress of the great column, they could not stop it. Neither could they dampen the spirits of the young troopers who rode knee-to-knee, and who looked forward to new victories. Through the floods of rain, the ten thousand, scouts and skirmishers on their flanks, swept southward, and they encountered no foe. A few southern horsemen would watch them at a great distance, and then ride sadly away. There was nothing in the valley that could oppose Sheridan. Dick's leggings and his overcoat, with an extremely high collar, kept him dry and warm, and he was too seasoned to mind the flying mud which thousands of hoofs sent up, and which soon covered them. The swift movement and the expectation of achieving something were exhilarating in spite of every hardship and obstacle. That night they reached the village of Woodstock, and the next day they crossed the north fork of the Shenandoah, already swollen by the heavy rains. The engineers rapidly and dexterously made a bridge of the pontoon boats, and the 10,000 thundered over in safety. The next night, they were at a little place called Lacey Springs, 60 miles from Winchester, a wonderful march for two days, considering the heavy rains and deep mud, and they had not yet encountered an enemy. How different it would have been in Stonewall Jackson's time. Then, not a mile of the road would have been safe for them. It was ample proof of the extremities to which the Confederacy was reduced. Lee at Petersburg could not reinforce Early, and Early at Staunton could not reinforce Lee. They intended to move on the next day, and they heard that night that Rosser, a brave Confederate general, had gathered a small Confederate force and was hastening forward to burn all the bridges over the middle fork of the Shenandoah, "'in order that he might impede Sheridan's progress. "'Then it was the call of the trumpet "'and boots and saddles early in the morning "'in order that they might beat Rosser to the bridges. "'I hope for their sake that they won't try to fight us,' said Dick. "'I'm with you on that,' said Pennington. "'They can't be more than a few hundreds, "'and it would take thousands, even with the river to help, "'to stop an army like ours. "'It was not raining now,' and the roads growing drier thundered with the hoofs of 10,000 horses the winchesters had an honored place in the van and as they approached the middle fork of the shenandoah the three young captains raised themselves in their saddles to see if the bridge yet stood it was there but on the other side of the stream a small body of cavalry men in gray were galloping forward and some had already dismounted for the attempt to destroy it The arrival of the two forces was almost simultaneous, but the Union Army, overwhelming in numbers, exulting in victory, swept forward to the call of the trumpets. "'They're not more than five or six hundred over there,' said Warner. "'Too few to put up a fight against us. "'I feel sorry for them and wish they'd go away.' The Southerners, nevertheless, were sweeping the narrow bridge with a heavy rifle fire, and Sheridan drew back his men for a few minutes." then followed a series of mighty splashes as two West Virginia regiments sent their horses into the river, swam it, and, as they emerged dripping on the farther shore, charged the little Confederate force in flank, compelling it to retreat so swiftly that it left behind prisoners and its wagons. It was all over in a few minutes, and the whole army, crossing the river, moved steadily on toward Staunton, where Early had been in camp, and where Sheridan hoped to find him. The little victory did not bring Dick any joy. He knew that the Confederacy could now make no stand in the Valley of Virginia, and it was like beating down those who were already beaten. He sincerely hoped that Early would not await them at Staunton or anywhere else, but would take his feudal forces out of the Valley and join Lee. The heavy rains began again. Winter was breaking up, and its transition into spring was accompanied by floods. The last snow on the mountains melted and rushed down in torrents. The roads, already ruined by war, became vast ruts of mud, but Sheridan was never daunted by physical obstacles. The great army of cavalry, scarcely slacking speed, pressed forward continually, and Dick knew that Early did not have the shadow of a chance to withstand such an army. The next day they entered Staunton, another of the neat little Virginia cities devoted solidly and passionately to the southern cause. Here, they were faced again by blind doors and windows, but Early and his force were gone. Shepard had brought news that he had prepared for a stand at Waynesboro, although he had only 2,000 men. "'Our general will attack him at once,' said Warner, when he heard of it. "'He sweeps like a hurricane.'" He is surely the general for us at such a time," said Pennington, who began to feel himself a military authority. "It's humane, at least," said Dick. "The quicker it's over, the smaller the toll of ruin and death." Nor had they judged Sheridan wrongly. His men advanced with speed, hunting early, and they found him fortified with his scanty forces on a ridge near the little town of Waynesboro. The daring young leader, Custer, and Colonel Winchester, riding forward, found his flank exposed, and it was enough for Sheridan. He formed his plan with rapidity and executed it with precision. The Custer and Winchester men were dismounted, and they assailed the exposed flank at once, while the remainder of the army made a direct and violent charge in front. It seemed to Dick that Early was swept away in an instant, and the attack was so swift and overwhelming, "'that there was but little loss of life on either side. 4 fifths of the southern men in their cannon were captured. "'While early, several of his generals "'and a few hundred soldiers escaped to the woods. "'His army, however, had ceased to exist, "'and Sheridan and his muddy victors "'rode on to the ancient town of Charlottesville, "'which, having no forces to defend it, "'the mayor and the leading citizens surrendered. "'Dick, Warner, and Pennington walked through the silent halls of the University of Virginia, the South's most famous institution of learning, founded by Thomas Jefferson, one of the Republic's greatest men. "'I hope they will reopen it next year,' said Warner generously, "'and that it will grow and grow until it becomes a rival of Harvard. "'We want to defeat the South, but not to destroy it. "'Since it is to be a part of the Union again, and loyal forever, "'I hope and believe... We want it strong and prosperous. "'I'm with you in that,' said Dick, "'and I feel it with particular strength while I am here. "'There have been many great Virginians, "'and I hope there will be many more.'" They also visited Monticello, the famous colonial mansion which the great Jefferson had built, and in which he had lived and planned for the Republic. They trod there with light steps, feeling that his spirit was still present. Virginia was the greatest of the border states, But it seemed to Dick that here he was in the very heart of the South. Virginia was the greatest of the Southern fighting states, too, and it had furnished most of the great Southern leaders, at least two of her sons ranking among the foremost military geniuses of modern times. For nearly four years they had barred the way to every Northern advance, and had won great victories over numbers. But Dick was sure, as he stood on a portico at Monticello, in the very heart of valiant Virginia, that the fate of the South was sealed. They did not stay long at Charlottesville and Monticello, but a portion of the army, including the Winchester men, went on tearing up the railroad, while another column demolished a canal used for military purposes. Then the two forces united at a town called Newmarket, but they could go no farther. The heavy rains and the melting snows had swollen the rivers enormously, All the bridges before them were destroyed, and their own pontoons proved inadequate in the face of the great rushing streams. Then they turned back. Dick and his comrades were secretly glad. The rising of the waters had prevented them from going into North Carolina and joining Sherman. Hence, they deduced that so active a man as Sheridan would march for a junction with Grant, and that was where they wanted to go. They did not believe that the Confederacy was to be finished in North Carolina, but at Richmond. They knew that Lee's army yet stood between Grant and the southern capital, and there would be the heart of great affairs. Spring was now opening, and Sheridan's army moved eastward. Men and horses were covered with mud, but they still had the flush of victories won and the incentive of others expected. They were, even yet, worn by hard marching and some fighting but it was a healthy leanness, making their muscles as tough as whipcord, while their eyes were keen like those of hawks. Dick did not rejoice now in the work they were doing, although he saw its need. Theirs was a task of destruction. For a distance of more than fifty miles they ruined a canal important to the Confederacy. Boats, locks, everything went, and they also made cuts by which the swollen James poured into the canal, flooding it and thrusting it out of its banks. They met no resistance, save a few distant shots, and Sheridan rejoiced over his plan to join the Army of the Potomac, although he had not yet been able to send word of it to Grant. But the omens remained propitious. They saw now that there were no walls in the rear of the Confederacy, and they had little to do but march. The heavy rains followed them, roads disappeared, and it seemed to the young captains that they lived in eternal showers of mud, Horses and riders alike were caked with it, and they ceased to make any effort to clean themselves. "'This is not a white army,' said Warner, looking down a long column. "'It's brown, although it would be hard to name the shade of brown.' "'It's not always brown,' said Pennington. "'Lots of Virginia mud is a rich, ripe red. "'Bet you anything that before tomorrow night "'we will have turned to some hue of scarlet.' "'We won't take that wager,' said Dick. "'Because you bet on a certainty.'" That afternoon, the scouts surprised a telegraph station on the railroad and found in it a dispatch from General Early. To the great amazement of Sheridan, Early was not far away. He had only 200 men, but with them the grim old fighter prepared to attack the Union Army. Sheridan himself felt a certain pity for his desperate opponent, but he promptly sent Custer in search of him. The young cavalrymen quickly found him and scattered or captured the entire band. Early escaped from the fight with a lone orderly as his comrade, and the next day the general, who had lost all through no fault of his own, rode into Richmond with his single companion, and from him Jefferson Davis, President of the Confederacy, heard the full tale of Southern disaster in the Valley of Virginia. Meanwhile, Sheridan and his victorious army rode on to a place called White House, where they found plenty of stores, and where they halted for a long rest, and also to secure new mounts if they could. Their horses were worn out completely by the great campaign, and were wholly unfit for further service. But it was hard to obtain fresh ones, and the delay was longer than the general had intended. Nevertheless, his troops profited by it. They had not realized until they stopped how near they too had come to utter exhaustion, and for several days they were in a kind of physical torpor, while their strength came back gradually. "'I think I've removed the last trace of the Virginia mud from my clothes and myself,' said Warner on the morning of the second day, but I've had to work hard to do it, as time seemed to have made it almost a part of my being. "'I've spent most of my time learning to walk again, and getting the bows out of my legs.' "'said Dick. "'I've been a horse so long "'that I felt like a sailor "'coming ashore from a three-year cruise. "'Agreed with me pretty well, "'all except the mud, "'since I was born on horseback,' "'said Pennington. "'But I don't like to ride "'in a brown plaster suit of armor. "'What do you think is ahead, boys?' "'Junction with Grant,' said Dick. "'They say also that General Sherman, "'after completing his great work "'in Georgia and North Carolina, "'is coming to join them, too. "'It will be a great meeting,' that of the three successful generals who have destroyed the Confederacy, because there's nothing of it left now but Lee's army, and that, they say, is mighty small. It was, in reality, a triumphant march that they began after they left White House, refreshed, remounted, and ready for new conquests. They soon came into touch with the Army of the Potomac, and the great meeting between Grant, Sherman, and Sheridan took place, sherman having come north especially for the purpose then sheridan's force became attached to the army of the potomac and his cavalry columns advanced into the marshes around petersburg all fear that they would be sent to cooperate with sherman passed and dick knew that the winchester men would be in the final struggle with lee a struggle the success of which he felt assured april was not far away the fierce winter was broken up completely But the spring rains were uncommonly heavy, and much of the low country about Petersburg was flooded, making it difficult for cavalry and impossible for infantry. Nevertheless, the army of Grant, with Sheridan now as a striking arm, began to close in on the beleaguered men in gray. Lee had held the trenches before Petersburg many months, keeping at bay a resolute and powerful army, led by an able and tenacious general. But it was evident now that he could not continue to hold them. Sheridan's victorious force on his flank made it impossible. The Winchester men were in a skirmish or two, but for a few days most of their work was maneuvering. That is, they were continually riding in search of better positions. At times the rain still poured, but the three young captains were so full of expectancy that they scarcely noticed it. Dick often heard the trumpets singing across the marshes, and now and then he saw the Confederate skirmishers and the roofs of Petersburg. He beheld, too, with his own eyes, the circle of steel closing about the last hope of the Confederacy, and he felt every day, with increasing strength, that the end was near. But the outside world did not realize that the Great War was to close so suddenly. It had raged with the utmost violence for four years, and it seemed the normal condition in America. Huge battles had been fought, and they had ended in nothing. Three years before, McClellan had been nearer to Richmond than Grant was now, and yet he had been driven away. Lee and Jackson had won brilliant victories, or had held the Union numbers to a draw, and to those looking from far away, the end seemed as distant as ever. At that very moment, They were saying in Europe that the Confederacy was invincible, and that it was stronger than it had been a year or two earlier. Dick, all unconscious of distant opinion, watched the tightening of the steel belt, and helped in the task. He and his comrades never doubted. They knew that Sherman had crushed the Southeast, and that Thomas, that stern old rock of Chickamauga, had annihilated the southern army of Hood at Nashville. Dick was glad that the triumph there had gone to Thomas, whom he always held in the greatest respect and admiration. He often saw Grant in those days, a silent, resolute man, thinner than of old, and stooped a little with care and responsibility. Dick, like the others, felt with all the power of conviction that Grant would never go back, and Shepard, who had entered Petersburg twice at the imminent risk of his life, assured him that Lee's force was wearing away. There was left only a fraction of the great army of northern Virginia that had fought so brilliantly at Chancellorsville, Gettysburg, the wilderness, and on many another battlefield. Only we who are here, and who can see with our own eyes, know what is about to happen, said the spy. Even our own northern states, so long deluded by false hopes, can't yet believe, but we know. Did you hear anything of the Invincibles when you were in Petersburg? asked Dick i heard of them and i also saw them although they did not know that i was near i suppose harry kenton could scarcely have contained himself had he had known that was my sister who filched that map from the curtis home in richmond and that it was me to whom she gave it. it was all right he escaped unhurt from the valley yes or if he took a hurt it was but a slight one from which he soon recovered he and his comrades dalton st Clair, and langdon "'And the two colonels, Talbot and St. Hilaire, are back with Lee, "'and they've organized another regiment called the Invincibles, "'which Talbot and St. Hilaire lead, "'although your cousin and Dalton are on Lee's staff again. "'I suppose we'll come face to face again, "'and this time at the very last,' said Dick. "'I hope they'll be reasonable about it "'and won't insist on fighting until they're all killed. "'Have you heard anything of those two robbers and murderers, "'Slade and Skelly? "'Not a thing.' But I didn't expect it. They'd never leave the mountains. Instead, they'll go farther into them. That night, many messengers rode with dispatches, and the lines of the Northern Army were tightened. Dick saw all the signs that portended a great movement, signs with which he had long since grown familiar. The big batteries were pushed forward, and heavy masses of infantry were moved closer to the Confederate trenches. He felt quite sure that the final grapple was at hand.